All right, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. We're in our final... uh, We're in our final letter to the uh, seven churches. As I mentioned, we've been taking these churches one at a time, these letters, and now we'll start to do maybe a couple chapters at a time and and just kind of as it as it goes we'll we'll kind of speed up a little bit. But to me, there's uh there's three as as Revelation chapter 119 says, "Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later." So Revelation, it gives its own outline. How many times do you look in the book trying to figure out like what it's about? Well, you go to the usually the, the front, you can see kind of the chapters, how they're divided. Well, this gives its own outline here in verse 19. And so John, the disciple of Jesus, apostle of Jesus, he's an old man. He's on the island of Patmos. He's, he's totally uh, sent out into this uh, wilderness place. And he writes these words. Because Jesus said, hey, I want you to write this down about me and I want you to tell people what's going to happen. He, he goes, what you've seen, what you will see, and what will happen after that. And so there's three different sections here. The first was a vision of Christ, and that's chapter 1. We've already been through that. Jesus kind of reveals himself. So shock and awe. Wow, eyes of fire. I'm the one who holds the, you know, the flaming sword coming out of my mouth. And all these amazing things in chapter 1. Jesus, John sees a vision of Jesus Christ. And now chapters 2 and 3, he says the things which are the church. That's what age we're in. We're in the church age right now. And I believe that, that these letters are to each of the churches that existed at that time. And as we read through this section, chapters 2 and 3, we've been hitting each of these churches that Jesus mentioned. And something about every single church, I don't know, has affected my life. Something that the Lord has said to, that was good or something they needed to change or what have you. And, and as we look at the end of every single one of these little letters, like to the church of Ephesus, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so there's an admonition, whoever has ears in here, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. That's you, not to the building. You're the church, the people. And so as you have ears, listen to what God's saying to you. As he's talking to these people a long time ago, what is he saying to you today? What, and also hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural, that the churches were to look at each other's letters and say, what was it that God was saying to them? Maybe a little bit applies to me. So what's going on with CCF right now? What do we need to change? What's the Spirit of God saying? You're doing really great in these areas. Awesome. But I have this against you. We all want to be Philadelphia, that last church, but nothing was wrong. Or, you know, the second church, Sardis, who was suffering. But I think we're all doing pretty good in here. You know, we suffer physically and all these types of things. But I mean... We're not getting persecuted for the faith, pretty much. I don't think so, so much yet. You know, and so you look at these things and go, okay, well, perhaps the Lord might say, wake up, church. But perhaps the Lord might say, hey, you're doing great in these works. I just want to encourage you. Keep going in those. Perhaps he's saying, hey, you're dead as a doornail. Come you need my Holy Spirit to fill your life. You know what I'm saying? What is the Lord saying to us? And I'm excited about these letters. I think they're the most applicable out of this, out of this book for us right now because we're in this age, the church age. And so that's chapters 2 and 3, seven letters. And as I mentioned in your outline right there, 
there are, uh, there are uh, seven things about each letter. There's just kind of an outline of seven things. First, you, as we know, it starts out with the name. It starts with the name of the church. And, this, and the name of the church has significance. It's kind of interesting as to what God is talking about about the church. The actual meaning of the name. Like Sardis we talked about uh, was, uh, no, sorry, Smyrna means, means death. They were being persecuted. They were being killed. It's very interesting. And Jesus, and then the third thing, uh, and then the second thing Jesus does is he reveals something about himself to the church, something out of chapter one. And what does he do to Smyrna? He reveals himself. I was him who was dead and is alive. He wants to encourage them. I understand what you're going through. I was dead and I was alive. Hold on like I did. Keep persevering. And so, in the, in the fourth thing, God starts telling them, hey, things you did well. He gives, gives them some commendations. These are great things you've done. Good job. And then he gets into concerns. Ah, this is what you need to change. I, but I have this against you. It always usually starts with that. Great, but I have this against you. And that's when we need to go, okay, what is it you have against us, Lord, that we need to change? And then he gives them the exhortation. What do they need to do about it? And then he, get, he, he continues on with, this, with the sixth thing, which is a promise to the overcomer. And then the last thing, which is the seventh, and he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sometimes six and seven are, are mixed up, and sometimes they don't have something good. To, God doesn't have anything good to say about them. Like uh, today, <laughs> we'll have on this last church. So, uh, Anyways, that's a general outline, and God lays it out there for you. And so this will be the last of the second section, which will be chapter 4. And beginning in verse chapter 4, verse 1, it's going to start with, and after these things. Remember, the things you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will come after. And so that word metatauto, that Greek phrase, and after these things, will begin in chapter 4, verse 1. And so we'll get there next week. And that's, that's no longer on the earth, so to speak. We're going to get a heavenly realm. We're going to get all the, the bowls and, 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 the, and the plagues and all this type of stuff coming out, uh, the end of the world. And it's going to be quite, kind of fun to navigate through there. And so uh, here we are in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, the last of the seven letters to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write. And again, the very first thing he does is he gives him a name. Name has significance in the scriptures. What does Leo mean? It means people. And so what does Diceas mean? It means rulers. This means ruled by the people. Very interesting. This word means ruled by the people. You know, I made a, I, somehow I made a mistake and I wanted to correct it before I said, Laodiceans, uh, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, remember when I said that? Uh, and I said uh, that uh, Nico was priesthood and Laity was, was the people. Laity is the people, but Nico means uh, to rule over. And so I drum, I dr- just for you who are taking notes, I know everybody's going over everybody's everybody here, I can see it. Um, but it's just, uh, I, I made that connection, but that's the, the context is what implies that. And I'll, if you have a problem with that, uh, let, talk to me later. But uh, basically, these people were ruled by the people. They were self-sufficient people. Anyone self-sufficient in America? How cool. The name has a lot to do with the subject of the letter. And so, uh, <laughs> very funny. It's, uh, you know, this, this city was uh, self-sufficient. And it, was, it was in a self-sufficient culture. Anyone in a self-sufficient culture? 
I've got it. Don't bug me. Who's supposed to be ruling the church? It's supposed to be a theocracy. Not, to, not ruled by us, but ruled by him and by his spirit. Amen? Amen? By his word. The Lord Jesus should be ruling. Josephus recorded that there was a large Jewish colony there. And also they were known for their prosperous new, neutrality. Um, since there was never, a, it wasn't really, it, it wasn't a really easy place to defend militarily. They always compromised. They're, it was kind of like the Swiss, you know. They just kind of, whatever whoever side was winning, they just kind of compromised on it. So that's kind of what it was. And it was uh, historically, you can look at this place. There was tons of stuff still there to this day to show the affluence of the city. It was a city of bankers. Yeah, there was a lot of money just flowing in and in and out of this place. There were baths and theaters and all this crazy stuff that they that's still there today. It's just a very affluent city, a very affluent situation, very self-sufficient. And so uh, it's the, it, it kind of meets the type, type of attitude. And it's amazing how culture can influence us as people. But these are the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. And, and so the Lord reveals about to himself about from something from chapter 1. And if you're following along in your outline, you've got to remember that these are the seven parts to each letter. So, um, amen means true. I'm, he's true. He's a faithful and true witness. That's from Revelation chapter 1. And I put all these in your notes. And I will not go over them too much right now because of time. But the beginning of God's creation, Jesus is saying that I'm, I'm the number one. I'm, I'm the head honcho. You talk about being self-sufficient. The Lord Jesus is self-sufficient. He is amazing. But it speaks of the beginning, the first origin, the first cause, the ruling pow- power. So he's pulling rank on him right now. And so Jesus reveals, reveals himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the origin of creation. Why is he revealing this? <clears throat> we will see in, in, in just a few. But next, verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. And I wish for you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus uses, is using an idiom that the Laodiceans knew. Uh, Laodicean was like in a tri-cities area. There was like three cities within five or six miles of each other. And, and one of these cities uh, was uh, uh, Herpolis or something like that. And, and they had hot springs there. And the water would flow through via aqueduct. It would come up very hot. And by the time it got to uh, <clears throat> Laodicea, it became lukewarm. And then as it continued on, it went to uh, Colossae where it was cold. And so... There's this, there's this thought out there that's like they, they all kind of knew what he was talking about. I wish you were hot or cold. You got lukewarm water. I don't know. How many of you like a lukewarm shower? I mean, like a lukewarm glass of water. I mean, some of you are weird, but, you know, I mean, <clears throat> I, remember going to, I remember going to the Philippines, and I don't know, it was 100 degrees and 90% humidity, and there's the ocean. We all decided we're going to go to the beach. We're like, yes. Run in the water, and it is hot. It's warm. I was just like, this is not refreshing. This is yucky, you know? And then you get out, and you're just like, that's just, why did I even enter into that thing? I just got salty, you know? 
It's horrible. There's, some, there's, there's no refreshingness. And whether Jesus is talking about being hot or cold, and you can go into either way, I, I don't know, you know the value of either. But what he's saying is he doesn't like lukewarm. We know that for sure. Lukewarm is not his favorite. It's his least enjoyable. He wants his church to be all in, is my guess. The Lord desires his church to be refreshing, whether it's you know a hot shower or a cold cup of water. You know what I mean? verse 17 you say that i am rich i have acquired wealth and i don't need a thing but you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked again their view of themselves was not accurate they had a bad spiritual view of themselves they equated material wealth with spiritual wealth Because they had possessions and things were taken care of, they assumed that they had the blessings of God. That everything was all right. When Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of riches. Now, that's that's pretty hard in our culture. They were but they were mistaken. They thought that they had because they had possessions, they were in need of nothing. That they didn't have a need. They were self-sufficient. Laodiceans, they were ruled by the people, were strong people, you know. It was a city of merchants and bankers and gold refiners. And at the junction of road, uh, it was at the junction of the roads leading to Ephesus and Smyrna. Much of, much of the wealth flowed through that place, as I talked about. There had caravan trades trading in China from that place. <clears throat> Far away. I mean, it was very amazing. Cicero held his court there and did his banking there. You know, it's another historical aspect. Uh, when, when the earthquake in 62 AD destroyed the city, leveled it, it was rebuilt by the wealthy citizens and not by Rome. They said, nah, we, don't, we don't need your help, Rome. We got it. And all the citizens pulled their wealth together, and they rebuilt the city. Pretty cool, huh? How, what happens in our city all of a sudden? Something goes wrong. Government aid. Government aid. Government aid. You know, you need it right away. Now the citizens all pulled together and said, okay, stay away. We've got it. And they all pulled it together. They're just a very self-reliant culture. That can be good in many respects. Don't get me wrong. But spiritually, no. Amen? It's interesting. They were wealthy and in need of nothing, when in actuality they were blind to their true condition. You say that I am rich and I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you don't realize that you're wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. The danger of self-reliance. The danger of having a church ruled by the people. By the human heart. And not by the Spirit of God. By a man. Even today, you know, I was just thinking about this. We in America think we're rich because of the, the place we live in. And truly, this is a, 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 a rich nation if you look at it. We have so many resources and so many things around us. And we have convenience left and right. But do you know that uh, you, each of us are $48,000 in debt as of 10.30 last night? Every single man, woman, and child? It's like, what? We are. We, the people, are debt in debt and broken. We had, we're dollars something or other, 1649 Dollars and twenty nine cents as of ten twelve last night. 
But the estimated population is 312,041,216. So you divide that up and it's $48,875 or $57 for everybody. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> well, the, the thing about that, if, if you want to pay off that by 2060, you'd have to pay $332.97 a month. That's at 8% interest, which is pretty good. No, I don't, how many of you have 8% interest on your credit cards? Maybe a few old timers, right? Nothing above 10 now. Nothing below 10 now. That's at 8%, so that's pretty good. I just was goofing off there. But on top of that, our, our country keeps spending $3.4 billion every day. You think that you're rich, but you are poor. You are in debt. You are absolutely bankrupt. You have no idea. You think because the things are, are functioning as normal that you're okay. And take that, and I'm not trying to make a political point. I'm just saying that there are certain realities that we feel that are real when actuality, we're not. You see what I'm saying? You take that and, and you just put it into the, the spiritual side. We better be careful about how we, when we self-analyze ourselves before the Lord and we go to his word and say, what does it say? Not what I say, not what everybody else says, but what does he say about my condition? Do I match up to his words? And if I don't, I don't care if anybody's giving me the attaboys. I don't match up. You know, or if a brother and sister in the Lord comes up to you and says, hey, you know, I love you, but this is an area of your life you've got to fix. You know, we better, we better wake up. Danger. You say you are rich, but actually you're poor. The point is that our perception of reality is often blurred by our comforts and trinkets. Amen? <laughs> so Jesus was telling his church what their true condition was. They're naked and poor, wretched and blind. Who wants to hear that? Then he exhorts them what to do, right? The exhortation, number four on your notes. I counsel you, verse 18, to buy gold for me, refined in the fire, so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. And he uses, again, a bunch of idioms, things that they knew about in their day so that they would connect these things. Your gold, you guys are, you have rich and you have merchants and all those things, the banker city, your gold, the things you trade in every day, it doesn't work in God's economy. You think because you have that, it doesn't transfer over. You're not rich. The currency is like, you have pesos, we have dollars. It doesn't work. You think because you have many that you're okay. You don't. Your gold doesn't work here. Jesus is saying you don't. it doesn't work. Come to me and buy my gold in my economy. think you know sometimes we think we're rich sometimes i think i'm rich when i'm actually poor you know we're actually poor in spirit we're supposed to be he talks about him and be given white clothes to wear he wants to be given white clothes to wear so that they can cover their shameful nakedness you know, the city was known for their textile industry, and they were known for a black wool from a, like some kind of weird breeded sheep over there, weird bread sheep. You know, it's this black wool. It's like raven wool, and everybody would wear it, and it was just like it was, it was distinctive about who they were. 
And Jesus said, come to me. You're actually naked. You think you're clothed in this fine clothing, but you're actually naked and poor. You're naked. Shameful. That's weird. That idea of thinking that we're covered because we're covered materially, that we're covered spiritually, you know? You ever remember Genesis? Adam and Eve, what did they do when they found out they were naked? Fig leaves! You know? Did that work very well? It's amazing how we as human beings, we love to cover ourselves spiritually with something. To make us feel like we're okay. But their covering wasn't sufficient. Adam and Eve's covering wasn't sufficient in the garden. What did God have to do? He had to go kill an animal. And he put their skin upon theirs. He he covered them with a sacrifice. Our sin cannot be covered apart from the shed blood of Jesus. Jesus is our covering. Jesus is the only spiritual covering that we will have. Not only does he cover, he cleanses. He takes it all away, the shame away. What are you covering today? I mean, are you covering your, you know, your, your spiritual condition with church or with activities or with whatever it is? He sees through. And put salve on your eyes so that you can see. They were blind to their condition, right? There was a school there, a school of medicine. It was known especially for the eye ointment they made, a mixture of oil and calirum powder. And described by Aristotle as Phrygian powder. It was known worldwide for its ability to help people with eye problems. So they had like this eye institute, you know, LASIK going on there, whatever it was. They were totally known for this. And Jesus is saying, come to me. And your eye soft doesn't work. You're blind. You're spiritually blind. Come to me and buy the stuff I have. And I'm going to put it on your eyes. You know, probably that mud stuff Jesus spit and slapped it on. But he's going to make them whole again. Come to me and let me put it on your eyes. They were spiritually blind and need to be touched by Jesus to see their condition, right? The way things really were. Why is Jesus speaking to like them like this? Why is he doing this? Verse 19. What does it say, everybody? Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. He loves them. He absolutely loves them. You know, sometimes we feel like when God's hand is heavy upon us or things are going wrong, you know. I don't know. He does so many things to get our attention. But sometimes we feel like, oh, you know, why are you doing this? Or why are these things happening? Why are you exposing these things? Why are you doing this? Because I love you. I bought you. That whole mess that is you, I saw it from the beginning and I purchased the whole darn thing and I didn't purchase it so you could stay the same. That's not your wife's job to change you. It's not your husband's job to change you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. He wants to come into your heart and make you a new person. Sometimes we think being a new person is going to church or doing all the actions when it's actually knowing Him, having that relationship. And when that relationship lights up, 
Then all these other things. Going to church, tithing, giving, going out and meet, feeding the poor, going to meet people and telling them about Jesus. They just flow out of this life because you know the king. Because he's changed you inside. It's not so that you'll be right with him. It's because you are right with him. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. And he says, so what are you going to do about it? So be earnest and repent. Truly, sincerely turn around and turn back towards the Lord, he's saying. You know, he loves them. They were in sin. Jesus rebukes them to restore them. He tells them to be earnest and repent. You know, be sincere and turn from that stuff. Turn back to me. Stop trusting in all this other stuff. Trust in me. Come to me. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, with that person, and they with me. We often hear this in altar calls, right? I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone comes to me, okay, that's cool. But I actually think there's there's a problem here. Because who's he talking to? Where's Jesus? Outside. If anyone in there, hey, hello, here's me. Are you going to open the door? It's an indictment against this fellowship. He's knocking. He's outside. I mean, Revelation 1 says that he's in the midst of the candlesticks. He's in the middle of the churches. Why is, what is Jesus doing outside? He's knocking. He's hoping that someone in there is going to hear his voice and open the door. He says, I'm going to come in and I will eat with that person. And they with me, I'm going to have communion with you. I'm going to commune with you. We're going to stop. In the Middle East, that was a big thing. You eat with someone, you become one with them. You, there's a big community bowl, and you dip in the same bowl, and they second dip and third dip, and whatever I eat, we all eat the same piece of bread. We all become one. And it's just this big, you know, it has such meaning when they eat together. You didn't eat with Gentiles because you don't want to become one with them. I want to become one with you, Jesus says. I want to be in your house. I want to be in your life. I want to be in the church. Open up. He desires to commune with the person who hears his voice and opens the door. And you see it throughout church history. The church becomes focused on Jesus, then it becomes focused on a method, and then Jesus gets kicked out. Then some poor soul goes and opens the door for Jesus, then that guy gets persecuted. (laughs) You know? (laughs) You see it over and over again. I don't want Jesus to work outside. I want him to be in. Not just the building. I'm not talking about the building, but where is he in our lives? Where is he in your life? Is he at the center of your life? Or is he on the outside? Is he at the soccer game? Is he on the sidelines or is he with you on the field? You know, is he in the middle of our elder meetings or is he in the outside? Is he in the middle of your, your family life, your daily life, or is he in the outside and you bring him in on Sundays? Oh, it's Jesus time. 
How about your vacations? You're planning your vacations and what you're doing with your life. Is it all, does it all revolve around him or your family? What? No. It's, it's, he is Lord or he isn't Lord. It doesn't mean you have to go to like Jesus land for, you know, for a vacation. I'm just saying, Lord, what would bring you glory? What's going to bring you glory? Kids, we're going to Bible college. No, it's not. Lord, we want to go on this vacation. Is this going to bring you glory? Is, it, can you, is this about you? Is there anyone you want us to bring, bring with? Is there anyone you want to stay home? You know? <laughs> Please, Lord. No, I'm just kidding. You know what I'm saying? Is he the center of everything? When you go to that soccer game, when you go to that football game, whatever it is, whatever the Lord has allowed you to, that you're a part of, is he in the middle of it? Or is he outside knocking? Because if he's outside knocking, guess where you don't want to be? Inside. You want him to be the middle. I want him to be the middle. It's all about him. We don't compartmentalize God. He is the center of our being. He is how we move and have life. In your job, make him the center. You don't have to set up incense and put a statue or nothing. No weird. You just make him the middle of your job. Every conversation you have, every person you see, Lord, am I to share with this person today in action or in deed or in prayer or what is it you have me to do? And you'd be led by his spirit. Because if the Lord tells you to share with someone at your workplace, you share. If the Lord tells you to pray, you pray. If the Lord tells you to be quiet, you be quiet. It's about knowing his voice and about following him. And let the consequences fall where they may. It's time that the, you know, the body of Christ hears his voice and responds to the spirit. <coughs> People out there are dying. And that's where he is. He's out there getting them right now. Do you hear his voice anymore? Have you ever heard his voice? Like, what are you talking about? Hearing voices, Matt. Those of you who heard his voice know what I'm talking about. Those who don't, come talk to us. Who, do, who have? You know that you know that you know. The Lord's spoken to you. He's encouraged you. It doesn't go against what his word has already said. You know, I shared this with the home fellowship this weekend, and I'll end on, on these, these thoughts. You know, when I first began to share the Lord, and I'm just using evangelism as, as a point. When we first began to you know, just to step out in faith and say, okay, Lord, I know you want me to share my faith with someone. I'm just going to start to do it. It'd be so nerve-wracking because you, you just have this, anybody have this fight inside? Oh, should I go talk to them? Or I don't, know what, I don't know what to say. Should I say this or should I say, oh, gosh. And then you work yourself in the corner and you don't do it. And then you feel guilty about it. Anyone? Okay, just a few of you have tried, right? All right. <clears throat> Many of you have tried. And then you start talking about it. And then you finally just go out there and do it. And you make a total fool of yourself and God but you feel like this connection with the Lord, right? And he's just getting you to listen to him and to obey. You're thinking, oh, it's about saving this person. He's like, I'm just getting you to move. Because <laughs> I have other things. 
You know, I was talking with Christy. How many times one of us, you know, something that, to where the Lord just puts, presses it upon my heart to share with someone, and I, and I do. And I don't know why. One time I was in, <clears throat> I was in line for gasoline, and there were some Hare Krishna people in front of me. And I'm like, okay, well, I better go share with them. I don't want to, God, but I guess I have to. And so I got out of my car. They're pumping gas, and they can't go anywhere, so I get to share with them. You know, hey, none of you guys are believe this, but Jesus is, you know, and it's in a front. It's em- embarrassing. It's, you know, and, and all this type of stuff. You get feel weird. And you start sharing. You say, hey, man, the Lord loves you. He died for your sins. And you know everything they believe is against that. Or maybe they'll accept everything you're saying, but not really. And I go back, after I get done, they didn't take any, I go sitting back in my car. And then they leave, and I pull up for the gas, and I go pump the gas, and I'm going, Lord, that was, a, you know, great. Thanks for, you know. <clears throat> and then I hear these people honking behind me. <laughs> There's some, you know, new believers back in the car behind me going, hey, you shared with them. Cool. You're actually doing what you're, you know, this is great. Hey, we're all together. It wasn't about me. It was about the Lord showing them someone was actually doing this. Someone who was actually following through on it. And there's so many different examples are shown with that. It's just about who knows what the Lord is going to do. But listen to his voice and jump out. Whether it's to, you know, no matter what circumstance you're in with your life, with your family. Hear his voice and step out in faith. And when you step out in faith, guess what? You've got a bunch of people around you who are going to straighten you out if you get weird. Amen? Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, Definitely. That's why I can get up here and I can just preach. Because I know that Gary and Marcus and all these guys are going to they're going to go, "Hey, you got something wrong?" I don't need to worry about it. They're going to come up and straighten me out. It's all cool, right? Just get to be praise the Lord. I know the time thing. Okay. Last verse. But are you a Laodicean? Are you self-ruled? Or are you Christ-ruled? Is it about your kingdom or is it about his? To the one who is victorious or the overcomer, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. And we'll talk about that more next week, a lot about thrones because we're going to be in the throne room. And verse 22, Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears, let, the Spirit, uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want to end with this uh, with this inscription that was on a cathedral in in Lubeck, Germany. It was on a cathedral. But think about this: have we, as we've been going through these churches, have have we heard His Spirit, and have we changed one bit? Have you done anything to change in your life since you've heard Jesus talk to the church? Have you done anything? Have I done anything? Thus speaketh Christ our Lord to us. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me way and walk me not. You call me life and choose me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me noble 
and serve me not. Ye call me gracious and trust me not. Ye call me might and honor me not. Ye call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. Very powerful stuff. Lord, I pray that we would have the ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to this church. Let us not just be hearers, but doers, Lord. Amen.